Welcome, I'm Richard Lang, and I am speaking today to my friend Sam Blight. I'm in London, Sam is in uh, Western Australia, and I've known Sam for nearly 20 years, I think. We met in a workshop, and uh, we have enjoyed sharing our true nature together over that time, and Sam and his wife Mary are just uh, fantastic helps in terms of uh, running the website, uh, publishing, translating. They've just been a fantastic team. Uh, so uh, it's with great pleasure that I'm just going to spend uh, the next period of time chatting with Sam, and uh, he can give you a little bit of background. What we thought we would start off on is the relationship between seeing who you really are, the headless way, and um, Authority, authority, something like that, and then we'll see where it goes. So, uh, welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. And uh, just introduce yourself a little bit. I mean, particularly in terms of why this subject is so interesting to you. Sure. Um, well, I've been interested in um, meditation and um, trying to find out what the hell's going on, basically, uh, from a fairly a young age, and um, uh, I discovered what I'll call conscious first personhood or seeing um, through the headless way uh, due to you, of course. You were there when it happened uh, a long time ago now, and it's really been a game changer. I've gone from being a, a seeker to a finder, um, and I, the the end of, of that search um, really frees up a lot of resources and by that I mean when you see who you really are as a direct experience and can begin to get the hang of living from there it's a completely different approach to life and things take on different meanings and you get interested in different things and you start to examine I guess in my case anyway I started to examine the path I I took to get here and uh, the long and winding road and for me that involved um, a number of stages i guess the first was my introduction to psychedelic drugs which really alerted me to the to the dimension of um uh, the, the inner dimension i guess you'd have to say the the, the depth dimension as uh, bishop spong calls it um the idea that there's more to life than the surface or our thoughts about that or our feelings about that or that there's this this kind of hidden realm which is hinted at in a lot of the spiritual and psychological literature, and um, I got and it, it, it presented it to me in such a way as it it showed me that in a, um, undeniably, and then gave me a glimpse of it anyway. And I had to figure out what to do about that in terms of the rest of my life. And I guess from that time on, I've although I've had a career in in um, doing various things and living my life, that's been the kind of late motif of my existence is trying to come to terms with what I discovered on those early adventures and so that you, took me you had a, a, a experience of depth and did you that uh, stayed with you really well it, the, the experience itself was you, you'd almost call fleeting although it was it, and, and it wasn't just one I explored it with drugs for about a year I guess uh, and and also read wide as widely as I could at the time it was the 70s uh, other people's accounts of what they thought it meant, and that included people like Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, Hoffman, the guy who invented uh, LSD. Um, and then later on, I, I, I read other people um, who had had 
different interpretations of this, but the one thing they had in common and the one thing that seemed to be valued about this was the mystical experience, the experience of, I guess you'd call it, the, the falling away of separation between self and the world, the sensation of oceanic boundlessness. That experience was what haunted me. And uh, because I experienced it as not only being real, but actually in some senses being more real, or at least my life was not as real when I wasn't experiencing that mm. uh, or in touch with that in some way. And so I, I went on a long journey of seeking to, to kind of figure out what that was about. Now, this was not a religious search in my way of my approach was not at all. I didn't come from a religious background. So it was more um, a scientific. I was a kind of psychonaut. I really wanted to find out what's going on. And the sort of scientific background I came from didn't really have much to say about this. And what it did have to say was pretty unhelpful to a large extent because it was all dealing with what you could say about the brain from the outside. And there's, there's definitely, you know, uh, correlates in, in, in the brain when you have these experiences, but they don't explain the first-person experience of, of this and its importance and its significance. So that led me into Buddhism first. Well, first of all, I, I dropped out of university without completing a degree. It was fatal to my education in that sense because I just couldn't see any point in in doing anything, you know, committing myself to anything major until I sorted this out, you know, because it's a fairly important uh, question. What, what am I exactly? What is this life? You know? And for me, it wasn't just an academic question. It was, it really did get into my marrow. So I did um, some, uh, had some experience of, of Buddhist meditation. I did some Vipassana courses, which I found helpful. Mindfulness, I understood that the, the idea of being present to the to the moment, you know, and not being lost in thought, how important that was. And that was helpful in many respects. It was helpful in other ways in my life. It helped me certainly. Um, it's a very good way of training your attention, you know, for, for, for life generally. But it didn't really answer my questions. I had some fleeting experiences of expansion, but they kind of, it was like kinds of things that I experienced on LSD. They would come and go. So then uh, I got involved in a cult, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of recruited by a, a, a psychotherapist that I'd been visiting because he had been advertised to me as someone who understood these states and would, would be able to guide me because I really did need a kind of mentor. At that was in my very early 20s. And uh, I needed someone to, uh, an older person, just to tell me what the hell was going on. And his advice was, at the beginning, pretty good. He said, look, what you've seen on those experiences is real, but you need to find out how to access them without the drugs because that's not a long-term solution. I kind, of, I kind of figured that out for myself, but it was great to hear it confirmed, particularly these experiences are real bit. You know, it's great. It's like we often find in the, in the social aspect of, of seeing, it's great to have uh, people who take the, what your experiences as a first person seriously. Uh, and don't just say, oh, you're, you know, you're tripping. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, unfortunately, he was captured by a cult and he pulled me into it, which was not his fault. I mean, it was it was the Rajneesh cult, which at the time in the late, um, sort of actually it was the mid-70s, mid to late 70s, was pulling a lot of people in from around the world, very bright people too, I mean, um, uh, who, who saw it, Rajneesh's approach as being a kind of, a synthesis of East and West, you know, the best of human development and Eastern wisdom and so on. And uh, to my untrained eye, it looked pretty good too. It, it, it helped, I guess, that at the time, I found out later, he was 
he was plagiarizing um, uh, Alan Watts to a great extent, which is a great guy to plagiarize, let's face it. <laughs> um, not, not word for word, but a lot, he, his, his, what he was saying when I sort of encountered him was basically uh, had a lot of Watts in it and made a lot of sense to me. And so, and the other thing that I'd been groomed to believe was that, you and this was partly because I'd been around the Theosophical Society and Eastern religious approaches, that you needed a master. You needed an enlightened master mm. in order to help you through, you know, to the uh, to liberation, and that you couldn't do it by yourself. So we were kind of searching for a master, the, the psychologist and a, and a small band of seekers around him, and we came across Rajneesh, and we he basically said, "This is the guy." He went and saw him in India, and phoned me back in Australia, and said, "Yeah, you've got to come. This guy's the this guy's the real deal." So. Uh, on that basis, I got involved. And I spent about 10 years in the cult, had lots of amazing experiences. Um, and at a certain point, I realised that all was not well in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> mm. I mean, no one joins a cult as someone, as a, as a perspicacious ex-Scientologist, I can't remember the name to my shame, pointed out that uh, you can't, um, nobody joins a cult, they join a movement or a, uh, they join a band of fellow people with... Um, similar ideas or, you know, kindred spirits who are going to change the world, change themselves. It's all going to be wonderful. And that's that's pretty much what I signed up for. But, of course... And what was wrong with it? What did you... Uh, what wasn't all, you know, wasn't well in the state of Denmark? Well, there were a couple of... The thing is, is you, it's all there at the beginning. It's like it's hidden in plain sight. But you tend to... You tend to see... A man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. There was a sign at the uh, at the entrance to the meditation hall, to the um, lecture hall. We used to go and listen to him speak. It said, "Leave your shoes and your mind at the door." Yeah. So, as there was this idea from the very get go that your mind was a problem, that your own critical faculties were a barrier to your enlightenment, and that the way it was to surrender completely to uh, this other, this 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 higher understanding, and let this come into you, and you, and you, that would do the trick. That your doubts, misgivings, any any resistance you had to this process was actually your, your ego, your problem, and, and had to be viewed in that way and gotten rid of or worked around in some way. So that was one thing that, that um, increasingly I found, not immediately, but it, it began to bother me. Like I began to notice that people who did very well at what they were doing in the ashram got demoted and ended up in the garbage uh, department. Um, there was a troop of players that we, uh, we did Shakespeare. A lot of very talented people ended up in this cult, I can tell you, some brilliant people. And there was a bunch of people from Royal Shakespeare who were uh, there, and they trained a, a bunch of players who did um, various plays, Midsummer's Night's Dream, in Shakespeare. And as part of the ashram outreach, they sort of sent these out into, the, into India and did these concerts as part of our PR, you know. And they were brilliant. They were very good. But as they got more famous, um, the guru started to bag them more and more. Said that they, you know, anybody who stood up to who got too started to flourish a bit too much, got hit, got banged down again. He said, "Oh, they're competition." Yeah, he said only enlightened people are truly creative. So he had this category of enlightenment, right? And he was in it, and we weren't. <laughs> and however good we were at what we did, or you know, that we weren't, we weren't there. At one point, um, he was interviewed going into America. I oh, know on, on at one of the interviews he did after the ranch collapsed, 
he, he was talking about how he was just surrounded by his friends and we're all equal here and blah, blah, blah. And a, 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 um, uh, a journalist asked him, then why are you sitting up on the podium and everyone's sitting around you? And he said, ah, because I have attained. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you had this kind of, um, yeah, there, and, and there was also a stratification inside the organisation, people who were close to him and, right. and they were like rings of influence and, and I never got very far up the greasy pole, I've got to tell you, but um, friends of mine did and, uh, and, and lived to regret it, um, one of whom I knew from very early. Uh, in fact, before, before we joined the cult, she's a friend of mine in the hippie community in Perth. She ended up writing a book named Jane Stork called uh, Breaking the Spell. She actually ended up in the higher echelons of the, the, the um, kind of power elite in the cult and then became very disillusioned and wrote a kind of tell-all, which is good to read, actually. It's, it helped um, wake a lot of us up, I think. But um, suffice it to say, at a certain point, and it was no, there's no particular moment I can put my finger on, I realised that it was all a bit dodgy. And I had to ask myself, well, what, what, I've just put 10 years or so of my life into this. What have I got out of it? And it wasn't that much. You know, it was, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd realised that, um, that meditation was good, but I kind of knew that before. But I'd actually been applying meditation in my life um, throughout that. And I guess being in the cult kind of helped that. But that was about it. And, um, and I began to look more and more at, at what had happened and, uh, and to try and understand it. And this has been an ongoing process. And it's, it's left me with an interest in authoritarianism and cults and the way that people were vulnerable to them and the way that they are really built into the structure of our society in a way. I mean, we're a, uh, it's, it's built into the word culture. Most of our culture comes from cults. So they're not completely bad. It's just that there's an aspect of them which is very dangerous, and I think particularly dangerous in our time, and that's authoritarianism. But um, the thing that really woke me up was meeting you and discovering headlessness and seeing what it meant not to be vulnerable to authoritarianism. In other words, to really respect your own authority with respect to your true nature and not be shaken by um, anyone else's view and not and what anybody else said or anyone else, how anybody else regarded you, really. It's, it's got nothing to do with that. It's either true where you are and who you are or it's not. And, and that's it. Mm. End of story. And that's a tremendous liberation. I mean, it's not the end of the, the work we've got to do, but it's it's certainly a very good place to work from because you're not constantly being distracted by, you know, bad information. And, and the uh, experiments all appeal to your experience of yourself and are not precisely. telling you. They're asking you to look for yourself and be your own authority. That is radical. This is this is the application of the scientific attitude to to self-inquiry in, in a very pure way. And um, science is in, inherently non-authoritarian, and that's how it differs from a lot of different approaches that we've tried before. Um, and a while, you know, you do get occasional sign, um, authoritarian sects forming within science. They generally don't last that long because they, at a certain point they, they fail the golden rule of science, which is show me the evidence. And... Uh, Show me the evidence is really a golden key to um, non-authoritarianism because 
Authoritarianism wants you to believe because I say so. It wants you to believe despite or without evidence, and that's made into a virtue. In the story of uh, in the Bible of doubting Thomas, um, he ba basically uh, the character of Jesus is made to give Thomas a bad time for asking for evidence, and it's kind of baked into religion not to want to ask evidence. That's that makes you ye of little faith. So they they elevate faith, which is like. I guess pretending to know what you don't know above evidence and knowing and, and, and adjusting your what you know or think you know to the you know, available evidence. So that the the experiments, because I guess I'd always suspected this, and but the experiments and the, and the headless way approach really brings it to a point because you're not told what the answer is. You're told to look for yourself. The only thing is um, you. Not everyone is. It's it's not the answer to the to, to the question that everyone's an, that everyone's asking. I mean, uh, you have to actually be interested and curious for that process to to matter. So, I can understand why this approach is not as popular as many others. So that must have been a relief for you, uh, a, a freedom. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't happen while I was still in the in the cult. I'd left the cult, and I'd got interested in other things um, and other teachers, and and these teachers were less authoritarian than Rajneesh, but they all had an element of, I've got the answer and you haven't, even if it was tacit. Even the good ones had that. So there was always this sense of like, have I really got it? You know, it, and, and will someone tell me when I've got it? which is weird when you think about it. <laughs> it's mm. very strange. But that was the feeling. Until I did the experiment, which was, for me, the first one was the pointing experiment, until I pointed here and saw the boundless nature of that, uh, what I was looking out of, when, when it kind of saw itself, or however you say it, mm. it was like there's no, it's not even a matter of doubt or certainty. I mean, doubt and certainty apply to to um, things in the view out, you know, mm. things that you can see, phenomena. That that those categories don't even apply here. So it's it's it is a tremendous tremendous relief. It's like, and it is every time I I, I notice it again too. I'm just talking to you then, just noticing it then. It's a fantastic experience of of um, decompression. So uh, this also has a uh, implication in terms of one's relationship with uh, with others who are interested in this kind of thing. I'm assuming that when you were in the cult, uh, you were all in a way agreeing that you hadn't got it and you'd get a kind of competitiveness maybe arising out of that. But the situation where, uh, in the headless community, if I can put it like that, is well, I for one anyway accept that it's so simple. How could you not get it? You, it that's not an issue. It, it is the the issue is uh, what's your response to this rather than mm. do you find that it's it's really um, if you're not all trying to reach for the golden ring together. And if everyone's understood to already have it, it's a different conversation completely. 
Mm. It's a different relationship completely. If you're all relating to this enlightened guy, there's inevitably going to be competition. It's like one person having many, one guy having many wives or a woman having many husbands. You know, whatever you say about it, there's going to be a sense of competition, a competition for attention from the, and approval and, and, and um, you know, uh, him telling you you're right or her telling you you're right, that you've got it or you haven't got it, and that's going to be there under the surface the whole time. And also the sense that uh, certainly in our particular cult, anybody who claimed to have got it was immediately ridiculed and basically um, sent to Coventry. You know, that was... That was evidence of, of ego in everybody except the master, <laughs> weirdly. And one way that you could get banned from the ashram, and I think it's still true, is by declaring that you're enlightened. Hmm. I mean, this happened to a friend of mine uh, who uh, who was sort of around the, the this is in the 2000s, uh, someone who, a teacher who came to um, a guru Kula like you did and uh, was a kind of a non-duality teacher, but she got, she visited the ashram I don't know if she took sannyas, but she was she was in there for a while. She knew some sannyasins, and she declared herself in, enlightened, and then they, she couldn't go there anymore. Hmm. So um, there's this sense that amongst us, that's not even a question. Like um, I, I assume that anyone who's done the experiments and values them is in the same condition. And even if they haven't, it doesn't matter because they're looking, they can't see their own head. They're looking out of who they really sure. are. So Absolutely. Uh, it's not even a, a matter of of whether you say yes or no, although that is hugely important. And, you know, obviously uh, we both of us say yes to it and or we look again and say yes again, but uh, mm. we accept that it's true for everyone. So we're speaking from the same silence, if you like. Uh, uh, yeah. I think from the social, I was really talking about the social aspect of it. The social aspect inside a cult is you're all related to the to the master more than you're related to each other. And it, there's a lot done to keep um, that in place. Like, um, most cults just really discourage um, long-term relationships between people. They tend to break up couples and, and break up families and that kind of thing. And there's a reason for that. And that is that the, the master wants your undivided devotion. And that has an effect on the social milieu in which you are. Not only does it make you feel like um, you're all somehow lacking and, and therefore in some deep way untrustworthy, it's quite weird. Mm. The only one who is trustworthy is the master. Whereas it, it, amongst our friends talking about this, there's no sense in which one of us is more headless than the others. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of ridiculous thought. So I suppose, uh, you know, in one way, that's a problem, isn't it? The way that that cult-like organisation is structured. Uh, do you think that the headless way is a kind, is an answer to that in, at some level, or, or what? I certainly think a non-authoritarian non approaches like this one have to be part of the answer. Yes, um, I think as long as you have that in that structure in place, the traditional structure of the 
the teacher who's got it and the students who don't. And then a long period uh, of the students trying to get it, it creates a kind of window opportunity for all kinds of bad stuff to happen. And it's not something that even teachers, I think, most teachers are, are kind of sucked into the mechanics of it. In their book, um, Alstead and, and um, Kramer, go uh, the, the um, Guru Papers, uh, they excellent book, by the way, um, they go into the, the mechanics of how that happens uh, and, and the way it happens almost mechanically, well, it happens mechanically as a, as a sort of social mechanism. When you have that attitude, it ends up putting a lot of power, a great deal of asymmetry of power, and the person who is in the teacher's role is very much surrounded by people who are agreeing with him and feeding back to him his own infallibility. The people around him are very much getting the, the reinforced that they haven't got it, that the only way forward is, is behind the, the noble leader, you know, to, to stay in touch with him. And the, the worst punishment that they could think of would be to be thrust into the outer darkness, you know, to, to be taken out of his company. So that, and, and he's constantly getting fed by that. So even if you've got a, even a small kernel of, of potential narcissism, being in that situation is going to turn you into a monster. And, and we've seen it happen. I mean, it, even in our time, it's happened over and over again even with people who were probably quite sincere to begin with. I mean, there are a couple of instances where it was obviously a conscious charlatan, someone like L. Ron Hubbard, who's founded Scientology, is pretty obviously a con man. But there are obviously people who, I'd say like Rajneesh, who in the beginning probably really sincerely was trying to do something useful for the world. But the mechanics of the situation turned him into a kind of... Um, uh, it turned him into an authoritarian cult leader who was really just exploiting everybody around him and justifying it in terms of his work. So everything was in terms of the work that he was doing, which was never really well defined to any of us. We just had to take it on faith that his work was the most important thing. And so as the as the the weirdness built up, you know, the ninety three Rolls Royces and the, the poisonings of the of the uh, outside world um, to, to rig elections and the, the, all the guns and, and the weirdness, as it built up, he somehow um, made it okay in his head. I don't know how, that this was all happening. and we and But we did too. I mean, we, we all up to, up to a point. Uh, and then people fell away at different stages, you know, and some are still rusted on, I'm sorry, sorry to say. But um, it got very, very strange. And... It's, it's not the only story like this. I mean, I've, I've been very interested in other, like the Nexium cult, and um, uh, oh, there, are, there are a whole lot of them where um, a very, very similar trajectory is followed, even though the beliefs and the teachings and the style, all of that, and this, even the, size, the scale, all different, but the actual mechanism of this authoritarian disaster are the, are the same. And it doesn't only occur in religion, it happens in society at large as well. I mean, you could say that um, America was taken over for four years by an authoritarian cult in the form of uh, Donald Trump, not very well organised, but it had all of the aspects of authoritarianism. Everything that Trump said was okay. And he was the, he was the anointed one of God. And, and therefore, uh, you didn't have to think, you just had to go with what he said, even though he contradicted himself and told obvious lies continually at the time he was there. And now we have Putin, of course. 
invading, you know, he's, he's invaded another country on the basis of his own kind of cult-like dreams of an extended Russia. And, you know, so it's very dangerous, this authoritarian trap. And uh, it got me thinking about how it relates to seeing and what, what, what seeing means to it, as you were saying. Well, I, I was wondering if you turned the searchlight on the headless way insofar as it's a community or an organization or a way, would you see dangers there? Would you see anything of that? I mean, what, what, how would you respond uh, to, well, Sam, you know, look at yourself? Look, um, in its current form and in my experience, it's not authoritarian. But I think we need to be we need to remain alert for signs of that. And the minute the egalitarian peer-to-peer um, -peer, um, nature of it is, is lost or imperiled, then we'll, then we'll be on a slippery slope, I think. Uh, I, don't, I think the, the, the likelihood of that is low because of the way people are brought into it. Um, the way that people are brought into other cults is quite significant there. They're usually brought in with some kind of conversion experience, which is very um, rah, rah, rah. It's, very, it's got a lot of emotion around it. It's got a lot of love bombing. The person is, you know, uh, usually made a big fuss of and, and brought in. And it's only after, and once they're in, then further and further demands are made upon them until they're, they're fully, you know, in, they're fully stuck. They've invested so much in it that to, to pull out would be very difficult. Headless way is not like that. It's like you get the goods, the entire goods, right at the beginning. So there's no question of come in here and get started on this and, and after a few, you know, we'll initiate you through all these stages and at a certain point, you know, you'll reach the goal. We don't do that. We just say, here it is. You know, here's the whole thing. And, like, within the first few minutes of a workshop, it's given um, uh, as quickly as possible. I mean, obviously, um, the only, the only impediment to doing it straight away is to give it some kind of framework that's meaningful to the people in the workshop, and that's a matter of individual judgment. But it's always given at the beginning. And there's this, it's always given with the, um, with, the, with the knowledge that that's it, that, that there's no more to it, and that whatever comes after that, the meaning that you give to it even, is from you, not from the, the workshop um, facilitator i mean it's in your book when gurus in your uh, article when gurus become friends it really lays it out very clearly uh the difference between this approach and others and that, that diagram with the dots you know all connected to each other rather than connected through one single dot at the beginning at the, at the middle like other uh sort of teacher-based cults so that to me is gives me some hope that we won't or this approach won't be derailed into a, an authoritarian cult. And the other thing is it doesn't make any demands on you. People can come and go as they like. And they're not, we're not kind of guilting people out if they've been away and they come back 10 years later. You know, um, There's not this sense of like, if I have to miss a, a, a Zoom meeting or something, I don't feel terrible. Uh, I, I'll feel like, bummer, I missed the meeting, but you know, I won't feel like I've done anything bad or that I'm going to be uh, in trouble. And uh, the thing that, that characterised my whole time in the cult was kind of low-level fear, 
very interesting that, that I was pretty much afraid the whole time. This is something that most people in Kelts report. And the fear is of, of not getting it right, of doing something bad enough to be thrown out, or of being pulled into, forced to do something so terrible because of your devotion to the, to the leader. Because um, you see people doing things that you think are pretty bad, and you, think, and, and you think, well, they're doing it because the leader said so. So that they're, you know, I could, that could happen to me too. So there's this constant tension between your own sort of inner moral compass and what you're being put through. And I don't experience that with, with headlessness. It, doesn't, it makes no kind of demands on me like that. I mean, I voluntarily give my time to, to doing a few things, but it's not onerous. I enjoy it, and it's a, I experience it as a privilege. And I don't think if I stopped it, I would be any less headless. You know, it wouldn't actually reduce my um, immersion in the experience at all. It's just uh, so in answer to your question, I, I think it is turning the spotlight is you have to kind of be vigilant. I agree. But the things you've got to watch out for are anytime you're, you're asked to accept um, truth claims of any, any type without evidence. And any time that authority is exercised without accountability, any time that someone does something and you think, oh, he's done it, but there's nothing I can do about that, I can't challenge him mm. for whatever reason. Those seem to be the two things in common with, authori with, with authoritarian cults. They're, they're, they make you believe uh, or at least profess belief in things that you don't know and they don't give you any, any evidence for why they would be true, but you have to believe them. And the, the leader is not accountable. He's above reproach. So uh, in, in one way, there's nothing to learn, isn't it? You look and uh, you're not learning something when you see who you are. I mean, in some ways, I suppose you could say you are, but you're seeing freshly that you're built open for the world and mm. you are uh, your own authority on that. Uh, but at a social level, there is a learning process, isn't there? And there's, uh, it seems to me that um, amongst my friends that I share this with, there's a, a gradually growing understanding of the kind of things you've been saying, that everyone's got it, that everyone's response to it is valid, uh, those kinds of things are uh, deeply different from the normal culture in a religious grouping, perhaps, or mm. even in a political grouping. But this is about this is about uh, your true identity, and uh, uh, I, th I think uh, we're all learning as we go along, really, how to handle this and how to relate to each other. Um, I suppose for me, the saving grace is that it doesn't depend on the community. If everyone, you know, either left or uh, started to say that bloke's got it and I don't, I, I'd say, well, I don't agree, but I'm just, I, you know, in the end, who cares? <laughs> mm. that's, that's it. I mean, we, we, if you see the point, if you really see it, if you see the setup, then the community is incredibly valuable. And, and but it's not essential. I mean, it, it, so why is the community valuable? Do you think? I think it's because um, 
we are very social creatures. Human beings at a human level are very, very social, as many other primates and mammals and birds are. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a living thing to, to want to hang out with um, members of your own species and to and with human beings have a very rich experience of the world that's related to stories and narratives and and trying to understand what's going on. And so to hang out with a bunch of people um, who are interested in the same things, and that's at any level, I mean, whether it's hang gliding or embroidery or, you know, um, is, is very rich. I mean, I belong to an electric car club because I've got an electric car and I'm interested in the subject. And, I mean, I'll hang out with those guys and talk about stuff that would, would turn everybody else, else's brain to mush, you know. But I, I dig it because I'm there with people who, uh, and, and at, the, at, at the level of humanity, my humanity, finding other humans for whom this is valuable is just gold. On that, that's at the beginning, to start mm. with, that's, that's important. The other thing is that we're all each other's teachers then. We become like this many-headed uh, organism, this mm. many-brained organism, all reflecting from the same space. Mm. And, and I hear myself when you talk as if I'm talking. And, and I'm sure it's true for you there too. So it vastly enriches the experience in a way that's almost incalculable. Um, it's I infectious, just find... isn't it? I mean, I, yeah. you know, as soon as yeah. you say, uh, to, you know, in, in put in other words, the two voices, <laughs> our two voices are in one consciousness, uh, you know, uh, it's all within me, then suddenly I'm aware that both voices are in one consciousness. And that is, you know, with the car club, you point something out and you're both aware of what the electric car does, you know. Well, it's mm. it's a, it's not rocket science. It's not obscure. It is no. uh, sharing uh, in the same way a, a realisation or understanding, but it's mind-blowing. I mean, it's not just about uh, not just about um, cars or something. It's about, you know, it, there is only one space here. There's only one consciousness and uh, everything is in it. And so uh, if one is really deeply thrilled by that, how wonderful to meet others who are thrilled by it as well. Yeah. And, of course, any other interest you have in life is just a tiny sliver of life. You know whether it's even if it's very important to you, whereas this is this contains the whole of life, and to have friends who can see that too, and talk from that space and compare notes, tremendous. So uh, you share this with your wife. It, that must be a, a, a I imagine an important uh, ingredient in your relationship. Oh, look, it's it's a, a matter of great felicity, I've got to tell you. I mean, um, I mean, it's hard to say. We, we we do get on very well anyway, and we did before headlessness. But when we both became headless at roughly the same time, I think the same night, we both saw it. Um, I think I took to it a little bit more um, rapidly than Mary did, but. Um, over time, it kind of became the default way of us being together. So you're with somebody who, for whom this is the natural way of being. And then when it's interrupted by, you know, being ambushed by negative feelings or a, a, 
an adverse situation. It's a great, great help for, um, you can help the other one by holding the headless space. You don't have to say, oh, no, you've got to be headless now. This is, we don't do that. We just, one holds the headless, one of us is usually holding the headless space while the other one's freaking out. And we take turns. <laughs> well, uh, is, I mean, just to jump in there, it's pro it, probably the worst thing you could say is, all right, Mary, you now be headless. You're not being headless. Yeah, I, know. I mean, that, that is. That's uh, infuriating. It's like calm down. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, and it's against the spirit of it, isn't it? Because of course it's, you can't, yeah. that would be me being authoritarian. Yeah. Saying now you've got to be headless. You know, that's it's not like that. It doesn't work. Hmm. But I had some other thoughts regarding this approach um, and authoritarianism. Have we got time to talk yes, about those? Yes, Yeah, I was thought, thinking about the face game and uh, what a brilliant way of understanding human psychological development that is. And uh, you introduced me to that on our first night together um, in, in doing, doing the uh, card experiment. And it really blew my mind almost as much as the experience itself. It actually... This way of understanding uh, that, that Douglas worked out. Um, do you do you want to just briefly? Uh, no, you say it in your own words. What what's your right. understanding? Yes. Well, um, it it divides the uh, the human experience roughly into four stages. There are versions of it that have different numbers, but I'm going to say the four four versions. Um, and it begins at birth, and it's all related to for conscious first personhood. So it's not really understandable unless you see. You're seeing from where you're seeing from. So it's good at this point to point back at where you're looking from and notice what you're seeing and actually do it physically. Take your finger and point back at where others see your face and look what you're pointing into. That's the, that's the basis for understanding the face game. So when you come into the world, what you're seeing when you, when you point there is, is really all that is there. You are open space. You are space for the world. There's no context. There's no uh, interpretation. There's no um, identification even. There's just the, the, the world experiencing itself uh, without any kind of context. So that's, and that's a wonderful state. And, and little children give off this amazing, or babies particularly give off this incredible glow and are incredibly beautiful because of this. We recognise it even from a th in the third person, we recognise it as as something very precious and where where we always uh, i mean most normally psychologically normal people want to look after babies you know if you come across a baby in the street you will look after it and treasure it and not just because it, it's it's a proto-human being but because of this amazing state that it's in so and there's a sense that um there's something very sacred about that and we have a we have a kind of nostalgia i think about the golden period in our in our development and I think that's what that is for that's what that's about but of course a baby can't stay a baby and it has to become a person and, and in order to have autonomy it has to have a map of itself it has to have a kind of self-concept has to know how it fits into the world and all of that and um, so the second stage of the face game is learning that the one in the mirror the face in the mirror is where others is what others see where you are 
and and what and and that's what's really there. So you begin to about one year to eighteen months, little children recognise themselves in mirrors and realise the one they're looking at is the one they are. So the way that Douglas explained it very beautifully is that we, for the face game, we take that little face in the mirror and we pop it inside out so it's facing the other way. We stretch it out and we put it on here where 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 we where our face is. It's like a mask. And interestingly, the, the word person comes from persona, which is the the, the um, Greek word for mask. It's a something that you speak through, what you speak through. And, and that mask you have to take seriously as being who you are. And as a little child, you start to do that. But you're still very flexible. So you can let go of the mask and become a lion or, you know, a train or a cloud at will and then go back to it. So it's a very happy time when you're experimenting with being a person, but you've still got a certain amount of freedom and you haven't lost complete contact with your boundless wonderfulness. So that's stage two. Then we get to stage three, which is really, um, I'll call it adolescence into adulthood. It begins in adolescence, and it's, it's a stage where you have to decide what person you're going to be. So by this time, the, the physical fact of you, your being uh, the one you are in the mirror has taken on all this psychological baggage. So all of the things that you think about yourselves attached to this, this thing that you've become in the world, you've become a thing in the world, you have all this stuff and you where are you going to put it? You're going to stick it inside that thing. So immediately uh, you become a thing. You've got inside the thing and outside the thing. So you've got a barrier. You've got a kind of surface between what's inside you and what's outside you. And what's outside you is pretty scary. But what's inside you is even scarier. So you, you're in a pretty dire situation. And, and a lot, you know, you start to realize this as a, as a, an adolescent, you, you realise that your options are closing down. You're kind of entering a kind of long funnel in which you're going to have to choose the furniture very carefully <laughs> because you're going to be there for the rest of your life. You don't put it to yourself that way, but that's the sense that you get. And, and Pete, there's a lot of pressure on you to make very important decisions about what you're going to do, you know, what subjects you're going to study, what job you're going to have, all of that sort of thing. But you also have to figure out what kind of act you're going to have, what kind of person you're going to be, how you're going to present to the world. So your peer group becomes incredibly important to you. You've got to be, and you're very vulnerable to bullying at that point too, because if you're rejected by your peer group, it can be very, very damaging to your self-esteem and to your sense of yourself. So it's a terrible time, adolescence. And um, unsurprising, I mean, very sadly, quite a, quite a lot of people end their lives in that period because it's it's so horrible. But you make it through and you become an adult, and by this time you're pretty much welded to the, to the one you look like. You've pretty much become convinced you are a thing and you might there might be something more to you than being a thing, but it's a bit mysterious and it's kind of lost and you don't know what it is. And there's definitely an outside and an inside and what's inside is a lot of it's very untrustworthy because it's, it's stuff you don't want to know about. You know, it's stuff you've actually repressed in the process of becoming a thing. It's stuff you don't want people to know about. What you're, it's, it's what you're afraid you might be like. And then there's what you present to the world. So you've got this kind of split uh, between who you you are afraid you are and what you want, would like to be and what you like people to think you are. So you're kind of in a bad way. And this is, this is the human condition as experienced by most people. And we all go through it. And, you know, there are various cures for this that have been um, 
touted. Uh, and, and I guess all religions and spiritual approaches and psychology and all of that are all really uh, ways of, of curing this condition, uh, which we call normal adulthood, I guess. And then the fourth stage we get to is seeing. And this is, this is um, when you recover the boundlessness by whatever means of your initial condition when you came into the world, but at the same time you retain the, uh, all of the skill set and the way of being in the world that you acquired by becoming, you know, by believing you were a thing. So there's this wonderful situation where you kind of realise that your thing in yourself wasn't a mistake. It was a stage in a process. So you can forgive yourself for this, what you went through. You don't, it wasn't a mistake. And um, so this is a very humane idea. I mean, I haven't, I haven't come across this idea in any other spiritual tradition that I've looked into. All of them regarded the, the thing in yourself as a kind of ego-centric mistake that uh, you had to get rid of. You had to kind of dissolve it. But once you see, once you recover your, your original condition and you realise that you don't need to do anything about it, that you're you're okay as you are in a very very deep sense. Now, of course, there's a process that continues after that, where, where stuff comes up and you, the unconscious becomes conscious. All of that stuff that you've been going through keeps happening, but it's now happening not from you thinking there's something wrong with you. <laughs> it's coming from you experiencing the setup as it really is and welcoming whatever whatever comes up and being able to return at will to your um, to your original condition. So you don't even have to cling to it. You don't even have to get attached to your, your original condition again. You, you're not even, you're even free of that. You're, you're allowed to be who you are. You're allowed to forget. You're allowed to go astray because you can come back instantly. This is, this is real liberation to me. This is spontaneous liberation. This isn't, isn't kind of lying in a warm bath with headphones on listening to OM, you know. This is, this is full engagement with life, with all the danger and um, interest and, and creativity and thrill, but at the same time having this refuge from which you're living, which is boundless and impenetrable and, and not in time. You know, it's timeless. So that's the face game. So the fourth stage is, let's say it's uh, an unqualified good thing. <laughs> And it's not, uh, it's not some esoteric, uh, you know, un rarely discovered condition. It's a normal stage of human development. Mm. In the face game, this is being a seer, as, as Douglas called it, is not anything special. It's just our birthright. It's who we, you know, it's just a, the, the, the culmination of a, of, a, of a series of developments as human beings or sentient beings. So that's the face game, as um, as I understand it. Does that does that comport with your yes, understanding? Yes, yes. Do you have anything to add to that that I've left out? Well, I I, uh, I think that that uh, recognition that the that one sense of self uh, having its place, and uh, it, it's a it's as simple as when you look in the mirror. You see where your face is, and it's there and not here. And mm. identifying with that face in the mirror doesn't create a face over here. No, 
you, you, you enjoy. I enjoy being Richard, you know, some of the time. <laughs> but, Come on. Uh, but I, uh, you know, it's not a matter of getting rid, as you said so well, not a matter of purifying yourself or, you know, uh, cleaning up your act or something in order to be who you really are. I mean, I've lived long enough with it to know, at least for me, that doesn't happen and is not going to happen. Uh, but that's okay, because that's Richard. And I'm, I, uh, I have two sides to myself, the, the human, which is uh, full of imperfections, if you like, and the, the space here, which is clean, clear, always available, never goes away. Uh, and I know that that's true in everyone. So uh, one is um, not only off the hook oneself, but you, you others are off the hook, I think, and uh, well, they are, yeah. So the way this relates in my thinking to authoritarianism is that this game is the initial stages of it uh, have to be played in an authoritarian way. And by that I mean is you have to take things on trust and without evidence and you have to give away your authority in order to be accepted into the human club. So children have to do things just because their parents say so. And it's important that we do. It's not a mistake. So there's an authoritarianism sort of baked into the to the face game, which I, I can't think of a way of avoiding. Maybe there is, but the way it's played as I play it and as I've played it and the way I see it played, it's got this element in it that you give away your authority to others. Well, you're accepting and, that you are what others say you are. Yeah, you're accepting that. Yeah, yeah. You're accepting that, but in you're accepting that in a way that excludes the, the your own experience, mm. and so you've kind of been gaslit by um, by society in order to join society. So there's a cult-like aspect in society itself. It's kind of baked into the way we do being humans. So it's unsurprising, and and the split that I talked about of you know being um, the the inner outer split that's caused by the face game and our sense of distrust of our inner world makes us very, very prone to to um, this lack of confidence in ourselves, to being uh, to falling prey to an authoritarian influence. Someone saying, "Look, follow me; it'll all be okay." Um, you know, uh, I'm the enlightened one. Don't rely on your own thinking. You know, your best thinking has got you to where you are now. Uh, you're in deep trouble. So just forget all that. Just follow me; it'll be okay. And that applies in Lots of different areas of life. People are very prone to that. And I think that you remain prone to that until you see through that split. That That's the idea that I had that I wanted to discuss with you. Mm. That, that um, Because, you know, even if you get through, I've seen people get through one cult and then just get pulled into another one. They see through that cult, but the, the split is still there. Their underconfidence is still there. And so they immediately get, they sort of go to another one. They get pulled into another one. I've seen this in people who are in the Rajneesh cult with me and, and others uh, have described this process. So it's, I don't think it's uh, unusual. And, the, and as long as people are split that way, we will always have, you know, vulnerability to the, the strong leader in politics. You know, your, your Mussolini's and your Hitler's and your Pol Pot's and, and Stalin's who... who 
make, make people feel secure by giving them something to believe in because they don't believe in themselves. You know, they have no confidence in themselves. So it occurred to me that what we're doing in terms of, um, you know, celebrating and, and sharing this discovery, this fourth stage of the face game, is very important in, uh, as a way of mitigating authoritarianism uh, yes. in ourselves first, but in whoever it discovers this, I think, becomes less um, less vulnerable. It doesn't mean that you have to discover this in, in order not to be vulnerable. There are other ways. I mean, a lot of people have seen through authoritarianism without discovering this. I'm not saying that. But I think it's a very important part. Some version of this, some, some way of overcoming this inner split, this inner distrust of ourselves has to be has to be mastered before we can uh, move on and, and, you know, get out of the the stage of our history where authoritarianism has been the only way of doing things. Well, yes. Uh, the headless way, which gives direct access to your true nature without any conditions, uh, that uh, should get a few people worried, <laughs> you know. Well, uh, in the old but, days, it would have. Yeah, <laughs> it would have wanted. But in essence, it comes down to oneself because uh, uh, for me, uh, I can't even rely on the headless community. No. It, 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 that is putting the authority again out there. there yeah. It is a basic kind of... Um, rebelliousness it's a basic kind of uh, whatever you say i am going to look for myself i'm going to be my own authority and if you want to hang out and you agree with that great and if you if you don't so be it <laughs> yeah exactly i love that bit of graffiti it said someone wrote be your own authority on a wall and someone underneath it wrote no <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, so what will, what will be the, I mean, obviously there are certain structures in society that will require and continue to require authority. But the difference, I think I said earlier, the thing I realised about authoritarian power is that it's unaccountable. So when you have unaccountable power, power that doesn't have to account to anybody, um, then you've got authoritarianism. But if you've got, like if I go to a dentist, he's an authority. He tells me what I need to do about my teeth. But he's accountable for what he tells me. He gives me bad advice and my teeth are worse off for his treatment. I have recourse, you know, to, to uh, or, or I take it, my car to a, uh, a mechanic. He, he's an authority with respect to my car. Um, so, and people in government have, we have, we appoint authorities to look after. I mean, if we had to take a, you know, democratic vote on every minute bit of minutia that that we did as a society, the whole thing would just grind to a halt. And I've done, I've been in in clubs. You know, if you want to get anything done, you appoint a small committee, and then they report to the club on their findings. So the the idea of authority is not bad in itself. It's a kind of superpower that humans have. This delegation of authority has got its place. But where it should never happen, especially, is delegating it to someone who's exercising it without any kind of accountability and especially delegating it with respect to who we really are, to our well, true nature. Yes, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, 
I think uh, as soon as you start to think about it, you, you realize, well, no one is where I am. So no one has the authority to say what it's like where I am. And that's the whole point of the headless way is who are you? What is it like right where you are? Well, people can share their point of view, but they have no authority, no authority. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as soon as you get that, I mean, in that moment, at least game over. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is it gets much richer as a, as a, as a kind of discourse too. Mm. Like I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying about it and I'm not threatened by the, by the idea that you might have a different view of it than me. No. I kind of hope you do. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, uh, we're friends. We're, we're not members of a, a, a organization there isn't a membership <laughs> i'd like you to fill in this form and just it's a tick box form are you headless <laughs> do you move or does the world move through you <laughs> yes it's like doing but, an exam on the way yeah. in that would seem wouldn't it and then you get I mean, a little I, certificate at the end of that I think that, uh, I mean, one has to work these things out for oneself. You know, what is sharing it? I'm not sure what sharing it is, but it's not showing you something because uh, I can't. Mm. Uh, and, and you can't show me because you're not here. So uh, to a certain level, I accept you're conscious. I mean, I've no, I've no direct evidence that you are even conscious, no. but I accept that. I got, you know, uh, go along with that. Uh, and uh, accepting that, I then accept what you tell me, which, which makes sense, is that your consciousness is like mine. It's vast and open and full of the world, but it's full of a different angle on the world from what I'm experiencing. Well, is there we're not, uh, there we're if, if accepting that it's the same at root for us, and so, and yet different in expression. So, now the uh, the thing is, uh, if you're interested, hang out with others and share your responses because it's inspiring mm. and interesting and all the rest. Yeah, yeah. This is not an author authoritarian structure, uh, but um, no. I I'm sure that someone looking at at the, a group of headless people say, "Oh well." you know, that person has got more power, than, you know, so be it. That's all going to happen in society. Mm. Uh, it, that's the external thing and it's limited. But internally, I'm not in the group. The group is in me. Mm. I, I, I uh, you know, the, if you want to join the headless crowd, see that you can't. <laughs> well, see that you're see that you're already in it. it well it's in you that's right yeah, yeah. yeah the best way to to feel that you belong in the world is to see that the world belongs in you uh, and uh, no one can stop you doing that and uh, no yeah no that's true and no one can verify your experience for you no no that's the other aspect of, of cults is that the, the idea that um, of being reinforced in your beliefs by others around you, believing the other things fervently as well. So there's, there's all kinds of calls to, to uh, seriousness and, and commitment. Um, 
to show that you're really devoted or you know and and uh, i don't i don't see that in in what we're doing there's no there are no um there are no criteria for for engagement here you just have to have to be here and shoot I, I, have shoot. A, I have someone who trolls me you know on on youtube yeah right? yeah yeah writes all kind, you know, is a regular contributor. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, it's all, it's, he, he uh, his main argument often enough is this does not line up with the scriptures. And, yeah. uh, you know, he, he picks holes in it uh, with what I say in detail, you know, four minute and 30 seconds, he said this. Uh, and then interestingly enough, often at the end, he, descends into a personal abuse sure and you think what what's that about you you yeah. haven't you haven't got my attention enough yet so you're going to see if you can you know uh provoke me it, it's weird but what would you say i mean uh it, it is this enlightenment you're a, probably an authority on enlightenment uh sam i'm just teasing you <laughs> uh, but people would say uh, i remember douglas harding uh, uh he uh went with his son to the Buddhist Society Summer School at one point. Uh, I think before I met him, it, it was. And his, because his son was, a, became a Buddhist monk for a while and was interested. And uh, of course, there's Douglas sharing enlightenment mm -hmm. and, um, and uh, mentioned to his son, you know, that Judy and uh, I think it was three elderly women were now aware of their true nature, you see. Well, we know what he means but yeah. julian said to uh his dad he said father those three women are not having the same experience as the sakyamuni buddha uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> and he knows this because <laughs> well yeah <laughs> yeah Yes, exactly. But that's the thing about um, this approach is, an, is anathema to people who have been captured by authoritarianism. The fact that your troll references the scriptures is no surprise. He's going to be someone who's completely captured by an authoritarian belief system who sees this as a threat to it. And, and that's going to be normal. I mean, and, and I get people you know, who I share this with, who say the same thing. They say, oh, this is not enlightenment as described in this sort. Seeing's all very, you know, headlessness is all very well, but if you really want, you know, then you, you should check out this scripture. It doesn't fit mm. this. Well, and this it'll be something. Yeah. yeah, this teacher. That. And, and, of course, the minute someone says that, you realise that they've actually got more investment in that particular belief system than they have in their own curiosity about the truth. Well, there's not much. Also, it's like they are saying that they know what it's all about. Right. I mean, they've, they've got to know what it's all about to say that you haven't got it. You know, at least they know better than you. <laughs> it's a minefield. You know, it's a. Well, it's it's interesting though. I mean, I've been there myself. Uh, in the my guru is more enlightened than your guru game. It's a very important game when you're playing it because your own self-esteem is is kind of hooked up to that star. You know, I mean, if you're you're wearing the guy's picture on, a, on your, you know, on your beads, and you've got your orange dress on, and someone's dissing your master. You feel that as a personal attack. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you're not gonna, you're not gonna brook that lightly. I mean, they've done uh, fMRI scans of people, and 
when your when your belief system is attacked or your identity is attacked, your psychological identity is attacked, the same areas of your brain light up, same areas of the amygdala light up as if you were under physical attack. So, you know, well, it's, it's like any strong identity forms its own defences. You know, well, I mean, on that subject, uh, uh, what do you think about uh, ongoing seeing who you are, you know, over years and years, as it were? Does that affect your defensiveness or your brain patterns or, you know, God knows what? I mean, do, does it have a... a beneficial effect physiologically and all of that what, what's your experience what's your thought look um it's very hard to make pronouncements on this subject because anything you say is pretty much unfalsifiable <laughs> in the sense that <clears throat> i don't know how i would have been without seeing this right mm. so um but with that out of the way i would have to say that this relaxes me a lot about uh, I, I'm a lot less, I would say, defensive than I have been. And that, that may just be old age or whatever. But um, because I can see that I'm open, boundless, brightness, radiance, timeless being, somehow the attack on the one I look like is less threatening. It's not completely unthreatening, and I will defend myself. I'll defend the one, you know, the one... The one in the mirror will defend himself, as as is, you know, the human trait and quite lawful. But that's happening in the context of something that is um, doesn't need to be defended. So that I think that does change things. I, I mean, I've related that experience of being attacked verbally and and potentially physically by a very uh, lunatic client years ago, mm. and what that experience was like. Um, really was an eye-opener for me. It was not long after I'd started seeing, and the ferocity of the attack affected my body in the sense that I, I had the kind of adrenaline fight-or-flight uh, response that you'd expect. But there was also this added ingredient of, of kind of um, being able to take a backward step into the, the void and just experienced it from there. And that was a very interesting experience because I was ready to act if I had to, but I was coming from a place of, um, it's very hard to describe, but that, that is what life is like for me now. So I can still be, still be um, terrified by a deadline in my work or wake up worrying about things, but it's different. It's like they, those things don't seem to get as much traction. Um, the wonderful teacher, philosopher, Zen guy, D.T. Suzuki, who he had a Western wife who he loved very dearly. And she died, and he was very, very sad. And um, one of his one of his friends asked him, um, "So how's it going, DT?" And he said, "I'm very sad, but my sorrow has no roots." Mm. And it's okay. like that. You you can really experience your feelings to their true depths because they have no because you go deeper than that. You go deeper than anything you can feel, and that's a huge liberation. Does that answer your question? Well, yes, and uh, you could phrase this whole uh, discovery of who you really are as uh, a new skill set. Uh, yeah, it, I it, agree. Yes, that um, when you move 
from the third stage to the fourth stage of the of seeing, when you are awake to your true nature, you have a tool, uh, which you've just there uh, illustrated how it can help in a in a difficult situation. Uh, it is uh, uh, a way of uh, finding your way to relaxation to to. Uh, see that uh, you're not a thing, that everything is in you. Uh, it is the, uh, you, you kind of open up to the possibility that you're, that you are profoundly creative as your true nature, which, you know, the one in the mirror isn't. So that's going to open up your uh, view of what is possible in your life, perhaps, I'd have thought so. And uh also in relationships, the, the experience of being face to no face, which is so easy to say, but the actual experience uh, is a game changer. This, it's not mm. face to face. It, you're built open. Uh, as you yeah. say, you can still defend yourself. You can, you know, no, I'm not going to give you my wallet, but you're within me. And it's a very uh, loving thing. Now that you know, I was talking to someone, well, you know him, he was in one of the Zoom groups, and after the pandemic, it was the first time he'd been out to a social gathering, he went to a wedding, and um, he found himself uh, chatting to people, but being space for them, whereas before he would have felt anxious and uh, wondering what, you know, where to stand and what to do and what to say, if he found himself just relaxed. And it was a, a really pleasant experience. And he could tell that people enjoyed being with him because he was relaxed. Now, there's a, you know, a, a, a skill set, isn't, isn't there, in a way? You know, you go apply this, apply this, and, and find out that it works a lot better than not being aware of it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's nobility, isn't it? it in, I mean, it's what the word means to me. Nobility means... To be in the world, but in some way to be unaffected by it at a deep level, in a, in in the way in, in a way that you can engage then complete with, with freedom and creativity. And in chemistry, the noble gases are the ones that are not reactive. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of them. I think the the lightest one is helium, but they have most um, atoms have uh, either. Excess electrons or, or uh, an electron hole in their outer shells, and so they react with other electrons. And it's like sodium and chlorine, for instance, react and become because of they they've got places where they fit together. The noble um, the noble elements don't have any holes in their their you know they don't have any deficiency. And to me, the the seeing as I am, seeing myself as I am is a sense of seeing where I'm not deficient. Yeah. I'm obviously at, at the human level, I have many deficiencies and flaws and, you know, I'll always be a work in progress. But if I can operate from the place where I'm not deficient, that changes the game. That changes the way I come across. I don't want anything from anybody. That's, yeah. that's real freedom. That's amazing. And uh, seeing who you are gives you access to that, doesn't it? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. I mean, who wouldn't want that? And who wouldn't want to taste that in their life, you know? 
but uh, the problem is that people don't even know about it. And I think the work of the Headless Way is, is to get the message out and uh, offer the skill set. Uh, and people can take it up if they want or not, you know. But uh, I was I was given it freely, and uh, it has made such a difference to my life and to to many people I know. Uh, well, you've been responsible for infecting a large number of them, including <laughs> me. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it's a, it's a honor. Yeah, an honor. Well, you go around making friends, you know. You, you go around yeah. making noble friends. <laughs> I mean, you, you you say that people don't know about it. To the extent that they do know about it, it's often couched in in terms that make it harder to see, though. And this is, I think, a part of our battle, is making it obvious that it's not something esoteric, hidden for the, for the chosen few, uh, the result of many lifetimes, you know, arduous, work it's actually there for you now it's what what is true about you now is is the bullseye well you know that is reflected in uh, the way that i go about sharing which uh, is the way that i go i've been about sharing for years but i had to learn it because i did it differently before i used to give an introduction and give a context and well i mean you after only a few minutes you're into an argument <laughs> and you haven't even got to the point so what right, i do the, yeah so what i do these days someone says so what is the headless way i've done it several times recently i just look at them i say well it's just noticing you can't see your face your head now and, and i move my hands into the headless space and back and and then we see you know you've lit the the fuse you see if there's interest or not but yep. you're engaged yep. and you're <laughs> yeah you know that's straight to the point you know uh, yeah rather no i than, think that's yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think that it's it's being keeping your the the mental aspect of it a small target because <laughs> i mean if pe people are very you know usually people got a whole suite of ideas about what this is and they've usually got a bunch of um investment in those ideas and uh and sunk cost in 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 a lot of that so the less you say that's going to, you know, contradict any of that, the better. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that might be a good uh, point to end at least this part of the conversation. <laughs> I dare say that we'll be we'll be doing this for as long as we can still talk together, mate. Yes, that's right. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's windy. No, it's Thursday. <laughs> I agree. Let's go to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sam, a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, As always, my friend, stay healthy. Yeah. Take care.